Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. You don't see what you hear, as the lady told us. We went to Portland, Maine this week to meet newcomers from Central Africa, Angolans, and Congolese asking for U.S. asylum. Fox News hit the panic button two weeks ago. The word was that Maine is being overrun, inundated by African migrants. On a long day in Portland, we found nobody sounding scared. Around the pro basketball arena, where the asylum seekers are quartered pro tem, the air is one of quiet elation. Uh, the night before last night, we count 265 people sleeping in here. Wow. I mean, 265 people. And Siona Nguizani, known as Sonny, is an old hand with Portland's African welcome. You came from Angola how long ago? 60 years now. Tell us about Portland. Portland, Maine. Oh my God, Portland, Maine is uh, a home for me. It's my second home now. It's more safe here than all the places I've been. Wow. I think people are different here. And I've been very proud of the community, the way that uh, we are kind of stepping up. Every day you have uh, people here to interpret. You have cultural broker kind of uh, to sell American culture to those coming and kind of let American people to understand a little bit the culture of those people coming in. You have uh, people helping uh, cooking now. Every night I, before that I go to sleep, I have to make calls to make my list of ladies who are gonna, are gonna cook tomorrow, people who are gonna have to come to interpret, mm. people who are gonna have to come to transport people, whatever they have to go. And then sometimes you have a lot of them, sometimes you have less. So we are here almost every day. Can you just take a time and think the future? I'm telling you, yeah, 60% yeah, yeah. of those people in here are less than 18 years old. It just came out. It's the oldest state in America. Right. To renew your population, you want to bring youth. That's all we are asking as immigrant people. Give us a chance to prove ourselves useful. Give us a chance. That's what we are asking. A chance. <laughs> Mufalo Chitam speaks for a rights coalition in Maine. She personifies Portland's calm. She speaks for normalcy. I'm originally from Zambia. You have the right to enter the United States and ask for asylum. That's your right. Period. So is the UN declaration or what? Exactly what says your constitution. And that's why you can see such an overwhelming response, you know, for us as a community taking care of them because that's their right. I mean, the scene in there right now is just a sense of calmness. We just had lunch in the morning, you know, we have breakfast and then it's just a downtime. If it's a beautiful day like today, you know, they're able to go out. Yesterday we took them out, you know, at the park. We also have services, you know, that are working with the women. We have a nutrition program. 
pregnant mothers are also being taken care of. We've done a good job in terms of just creating, you know, some normalcy around them. We, they've had a medical screening, they've had vaccines, the kids are playing, and so we're trying to create a life around them as much as we can. But they look comfortable and rested. Why do we read so much fear of it? I mean, the first reflex in media, especially, is fear. I'm not sure it's that way with ordinary people, but in the media, it's fear. Interesting you say that because, you know, there's a whole difference in what you hear and what you are seeing and how we are responding as a community, as Maine, as Portland. It's very different from what you're seeing or what you're hearing at, at so the national levels. What you see is not what you hear. You know, and that's where I guess maybe it's a media thing. I don't <laughs> know. A big man called Papi Bongibo is Congolese from Kinshasa. He's been 10 years in Portland. I love the life here, I like it, it's quiet, and I got a job here anyway. We're asking for stories from this migration. Out of chaos in Congo, over land and water in Africa, on plains to Central America, and then on foot through swamplands to the Texas border. People got so many reasons, different reasons, as far as fleeing for their life, and also politic reason. The situation in Congo, still not good. They will form a group as they're running. Mm. So every country, they're looking for church and they're looking for the nation. Probably look for the city official, you know, seek for mm. help. That's what they've been doing so far, you know, talking mm. to the official, you know, authorities mm. or going to the Catholic or baptized or mm. any church just to seek help and keep moving. Also, we're amazed the way that these people were welcomed. I was talking like, how did you feel about this and they say that oh we are so happy because this is like for the first time we feel like we're treated like human wow. Papi is a cultural broker and he's our translator for the french-speaking newcomers i'm from the congo we came to a very dangerous road we're crossing forests, crossing water, and we're in risk to be killed by dangerous animals. We start our way into Ecuador, and from Ecuador, Colombia, and from Colombia, Panama. What made you say, I gotta go? Before and after the last election, the 2018 election, back home. We notice that nothing can be changed because corruption and security. They were one of the people who were trying to raise the voice, you know, because they were against the government. What was the worst that could have happened in Congo? I can get killed. People from the government secret service. What's your story? I think we are going through the same story that you just said because being one of resistant group against the election that just happened. Did you come together? We, we met uh, in Colombia. Everyone were running on his way and finally met in Colombia. Uh, my brother and wife were kidnapped. That's when I said that, oh, you know, I have to run because I may be the next one. Yeah. When were you scared? What was the scariest moment in your trip? The forest, you know, going into the jungle, you know, from Panama, from seven days, you know, sleeping in the jungle for seven days. 
who did you lose along the way? So we had this young lady that, that passed away. They were attacked by the bandits and they took everything they had and she lost it emotionally and she couldn't make it so she died. A friend who were chopping together, they lost a baby when while we were in Mexico. The baby, the, the baby passed away in Mexico and the baby was sick. So since they couldn't cross the American you know, border, the baby had to die. Would you do it again? I would never. No. You wouldn't do it again? No. He went to Angola and from Angola, if he had to do this again, he would love to be somewhere, you know, like Brazil. I ask you too. Would you do it again? <laughs> no, it's very dangerous. Tell us your story. It was very difficult. The first danger was back home because of fleeing for our life. And the second danger is while traveling, we're facing the cartel, the gang member, taking money, food, everything we had. This is in Africa or in, the, in Central America? In Central America. They will kill you for not having anything. And he think these people are terrorists. So. Did you see people die on your trip? Yeah, I saw a lot of people dying and some people lost their children. If you knew how hard it was, would you do it again? It's a very dangerous road and he would probably not probably take it if he was asked to do so. Mm. Yeah. How did you hear about Portland, Maine, and how do you like it? With a very difficult condition we've been through, Portland, Maine was the first state that actually gave us a, a good welcome. Ethan Strimling is the 51-year-old mayor of Portland, a sometime newspaper columnist and a seasoned state politician, a couple of times a day, Mayor Strimling turns up on a motor scooter to check on the new arrivals. I don't think anybody is leaving the Congo simply because they've heard about Portland, Maine. But they I want am... to meet the mayor who rides around town on, a, <laughs> on his own Vespa scooter. Yeah, scooter, right, I know. You know, we are a very welcoming community, and I am so honored and humbled that these families have discovered us and have said to folks at the border, we want to go to Portland, Maine. I think... They recognize there is a strong Congolese community here that they can connect to, and they understand that our city really is welcoming. Uh, the outpouring of support has just been remarkable. What are the earmarks of Portland, Maine, nice, so to speak? Portland, Maine, authentic? Yeah, we've always been that way. The city has been built on the backs of immigrants for 200 years, whether it was the Irish or the Italians or the Jews or Asians or Cambodians or Sudanese or Somali. Uh, generation after generation, immigrants have come here and helped to build our cities. What's your own family origin? Well, my father's side, Jewish, Eastern European, Latvian. My mother's side, Protestant, going all the way back. Great mix, just like most of us. My mm. father's side came over through Ellis Island, turn of the century, basically. Mm. But it's, you know, the, the, our city, I think our culture, our values are embracing, but our politics are too. And that's a very important part of this conversation. When did you, know, you realize that? Well, I, there's been a lot of times, but a pivotal moment was when my predecessor, the mayor before me, fought to make sure that the city council would fill a funding gap that Governor LePage had taken away right. that would have helped asylees. And that council stepped up in a vote to say, you know what, we're going to make sure that if you come here and you want to live here, that we're going to try to take care of you. We're not going to put you out on the street simply because the federal government mm. says you're not allowed to work. 
clearly our immigration policies today are backwards and are failing. That's part of the terrible piece of the politics in America right now. And I'm glad that the politics in Portland say, you know what, we don't consider you somebody else's problem. We consider you our opportunity. Mm. Honestly, I've, I've never been prouder as mayor than I have been in the last two weeks to hear people say how proud they are of this city and how much they want us to continue doing what we're doing. What makes Maine sound so different in the national furor around immigration? Is Maine out of step or the country? This is Open Source. The state of Maine invites tourists with its lobsters and lighthouses with the oldest population among the 50 states, median age 45. Maine is on the lookout for students too, newcomers of all kinds. On this matter of foreign immigration, the conversations we fell into on street corners in Portland, on the waterfront too, surfaced a distinctive Maine history and Maine attitude, starting in a barbershop. What are people saying about the Congolese? Well, some people are against it, some are for it, so. How about yourself? I mean, Myself, you... hey, they made it here, so much the better, you know what I mean? Well, we have a lot of people that come from a lot of different places that come and stay in Portland, so I, I, I don't see why not. You know, hopefully they can find a place. The workers that have been here, they've been pretty positive about it. Construction workers can be tough on anything. Would there be jobs in this part of Maine for those people once they learn the language? I would say yes. And we get a lot of people in here right now that don't speak English, but they're doing the jobs for construction. If they're coming legally, I have no objection. If they're illegal... They're coming they, looking for asylum. No, no. I, I disapprove of it. On what grounds? I mean, uh, On the fact that um, they should come through the borders the way that they should. We shouldn't be bringing them in. We shouldn't be giving them free this and free that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no. Okay. Fine, thank, you. thank you. And can I ask, where do your people come from? Uh, we're United States. Where do your people come from? Uh, I'm from Israel originally. Really? So, yeah. But I've been here my whole life, so, yeah. So I understand what it's like to come to a place where you're not from. And, I mean, our neighbors, the uh, Congolese right now at the expo, it's right around the corner from my apartment. You know, the kids are out playing in the streets just like everybody else's kids. Can they make a life in Maine? Oh, absolutely. Oh, gosh, this community? Absolutely. In Portland? Yeah. This is a welcoming community. We have people from all over the place here. I'm reading the paper on it, and, and we should be welcoming. How, how did Portland get that way? How did they get welcoming? Yeah. We're Americans. Our guest from Waterville, Maine, Catherine Besteman, teaches engaged anthropology at Colby College. That is the living history of Maine, an African settlement particularly in modern Maine. Catherine Bateson, Besteman, sorry, We've sampled your big book on the Somali refugees who arrived in a big way in Lewiston, Maine, almost 20 years ago. They're a rooted community by now, maybe 10,000 Somali Americans we hear in Androscoggin County and Portland. So Maine has met Africa on the doorstep before, so to speak. And Maine people we met this week kept referencing Lewiston and the Somalians 
How do you tell that story up to the present? <laughs> Uh, well, Somalis chose Maine. Uh, Maine didn't choose Somalis. So Somali uh, refugees first came to the United States as part of a refugee resettlement program legally mandated by U.S. Congress, uh, administered by the U.S. State Department. And once refugees are resettled mm. in the United States, they, like asylum seekers, like other citizens, are free to go wherever they want. And uh, so many Somalis were uh, didn't like their initial uh, areas of resettlement. They couldn't afford the apartments, or crime was high, or they were in uh, big cities where they weren't comfortable, and began looking for a place that they felt safe. And uh, about 10,000 of them chose Maine and moved here for a variety of reasons. The communities here were welcoming. Um, Lewiston in particular had uh, had been losing its population. It lost about 10% of its population over the preceding decade. Hmm. Um, abundant housing, cheap rents, walkability, great schools, low crime rate. Who wouldn't want to live there? Uh, so Somalis... Sorry, I was took a say, look and said, "Yeah, let's let's go there." But there was tension around it too, and I remember I was there. It must have been two thousand and two or three, and mm-hmm. the mayor famously told the Somalis, "No more. This is enough." And and That's there was a correct. reaction. Yeah, yeah. And so th- these are never easy processes. I mean, immigration is one of the hugest debates going on in our country right now. So it's not as though it's all you know sweetness and roses. There's these are things that we're that we're agitating over. I think uh, looking at Lewiston's history since that pivotal moment in 2001-2002, it's an incredible success story. Um, there was mm. pushback. The community just absolutely ferociously, the, by, by which I mean the surrounding community, ferociously came back with against the mayor's comments with a, with a many-in-one rally, a pro-immigrant, pro-diversity, pro-embracing community rally. Uh, that drew people from throughout the state, including most of our elected politicians, but not the mayor, who was mm-hmm. out of town on vacation. And it set a particular tone that this is who we are. These are the sorts of communities that we want to build. We will not tolerate uh, racist or xenophobic or or hostile attitudes towards people who choose to live here. People who choose to live here are people who we want to make community with, and we will make sure that we do it and we do it well. You Google Somalis in Maine, in Lewiston, and you can read that crime is down, business is up. The Lewiston High School boys soccer team keeps winning state championships (laughs) with Somalian help. Um, How do you measure success and what did it? No, I think all of those things are true. Uh, you know, the high school graduation rate is terrific. Somali kids are, um, you know, going off to college and then from there on to grad school. Uh, this, this is not atypical of immigrant communities. Um, typically, when immigrants move in, crime rates go down, um, the economy uh, improves. This is this is this is normal. Um, mm. I think the Somalis who moved to Lewiston uh, need to be congratulated for having built incredibly robust community-based organizations that um, set about the business of, of supporting their community members, um, rallying around youth development and educational access for students, um, rallying around things like obtaining citizenship, learning mm. English, gaining job skills. I mean, these were priorities that community members, Somali immigrant community members, set for themselves and developed community organizations to ensure that those things happened, to ensure their own ongoing success. Catherine Besterman, I want you to play anthropologist um, 
among the Mainers, but but first with the the Africans uh, in terms of what they're going through, why they're here. Migrants um, historically, internally and internationally tend to be energized, driven, charged, gifted people. Dare I say the adrenal elite, they take that chance and they, they have the wherewithal maybe for the first step. But what were their alternatives and, and what are they finding? Well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think you've heard it already expressed in the interviews that you did early on in the program, uh, what people have experienced and what they have gone through to to arrive here. I think the United States remains uh, a beacon of hope and opportunity. Uh, people who really feel their life chances are disappearing before their eyes and who feel very strongly that pull to ensure some kind of a future for their kids are willing to do a lot to uh, mm. to put their kids in that in that place of opportunity. And the United States is, you know, is is proud. I mean, that's been our history that we're supposed to be a land of opportunity that draws people. And what the Congolese, you know, I spoke to three women who were living at the Expo Center who had taken a boat from Angola to Brazil, walked across Brazil, walked across Peru, walked mm. across Ecuador, wa- walked across <laughs> Colombia through Central. Mm. I mean, you just think, who can do that? It's staggering. Yeah, it's staggering. Um, and and I think that if any anything gives an indication of their ability to succeed, uh, that that's it right there. Uh, so yes, those are absolutely the people who 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 you know are able to show up at the U.S. border requesting asylum. In people Portland, who have sorry, go ahead. No, I, I just said people who have been able to engineer for themselves absolutely remarkable, remarkable journeys of perseverance and planning and strategy and courage. Funny thing is, though, they have alternatives. In Portland, it was fascinating to me to hear um, Angolans considered other places. They can go to Portugal. They they have an old uh, relationship with Cuba. They could go to Cuba. They could stop in Brazil. Um, but they choose the United States. Do we know why? Well, I mean, people are choosing a variety of places. Uh, We're not the only place receiving immigrants. And I think that's a really important point for Americans to understand is for for all the numbers who are showing up here, um, there are there are huge numbers showing up elsewhere as well. I mean, Kenya alone, you know, has got probably three quarters of a million refugees still within that it's still housing Mm. within its borders. If you look at the countries bordering Syria, three million in in Turkey. Uh, you know how many millions are in Jordan and Lebanon, and so the idea that you know that Portland, Maine gets two hundred and sixty-two, really pales <laughs> by comparison. So let, let's put this in proportion. There, there are a lot of people in the world going a lot of places, and some of them choose to come here. Catherine, anthropologize the Mainers. The voices <laughs> are are so striking. Some maybe uh, old-fashioned. Friendly, open, unthreatened. In this context, it's it's striking. Yeah, I guess I I I, I wouldn't call them old-fashioned. I, I would call it forward-looking and, and futuristic. You know, Maine is looking toward its future, and I think people in Maine understand that our future will continue to be as our past has been, a future of renewal and and immigration and. And so, you know, as, as many of the people who you spoke with during your visit articulated, we, we do need new people. Uh, and, and we're eager and excited about that. And we don't know what the future will bring. And young people who come here and stay here and grow up here and 
and contribute to the flourishing of the state is, is something that any forward-thinking person should should embrace. So I think Mainers, you know, do have an acute sense of history, but they also have uh, an ability to, to, to look ahead um, rather than kind of getting admired in the present and say, this is what we need. This is what is going to allow our community to grow and flourish. Is that a, it sounds like a common view, but it can't be entirely. Maine had a very reactionary governor, Paul LePage, until not so long ago. Uh, there is an opposition. What does it sound like? Yeah, of course. And, I'm saying you know, we didn't it, meet it. We, Sorry? We, we didn't meet the opposition, but... Wh- no, no, but it certainly exists. I mean, there's no contesting that. You know, Governor LePage won his first election with something like 38% of the vote. And uh, so that's indicative, you know, of, of, um, of a minority view. Uh, and he, during his eight years in office, became increasingly xenophobic and increasingly alarmist uh, mm. in, you know, in, in his rhetoric. And... Uh, and that reflects a certain minority percentage of the population, uh, but but I think that that the far more common sentiment is is that which you heard, um, which is which doesn't mean that we're not struggling over these things all the time. We are, but the voice of reason and the voice of compassion and the voice of the future, I think, is continuing to win in Maine as as it should. Climate, climate change, all of it bad, and. Mass immigration are two of the giant stories of our world. Usually, it's taken, you know, as a as a terrible threat and met with denial. But Maine seems to have seems to have anticipated us into uh, a new century. Can we explain that? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Explain well, it. How. I'm just thinking in Maine. We went looking, in a certain sense, for a, a glimpse of the 21st century, issues that are not going to go away. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of uh, Nigerians uh, forecast in, in the growth of just one state in Africa. But worldwide, uh, we know that from the global south, uh, people are going to be moving this way. And nobody has a notion of what to do about it or how to react. <laughs> but Maine seems to have... Be taking it somehow in stride is my. Yeah, Maine is interesting because I think Maine is, for for whatever reason, less susceptible to kind of ideological warmongering about about um, becoming entrenched in particular ideological or, or politically motivated perspectives. Maine Maine strikes me. I've lived here for twenty five years. I'm not by birth a Mainer, um, but I but I am an observer um, of Maine, as you called me, an anthropologist of Maine. And one of the things that strikes me about Maine is it's sort of a realist, let's look around and fix this problem attitude. And Mainers, you know, are doing that all the time every day. Maine is a, is a tough place to live. Um, it's not a wealthy state, particularly. People work hard here. Hmm. And there's a there's very much of a kind of a, you know, can-do attitude. Okay, we, we're faced with these problems. We have to fix them. We don't have another option. And so let's figure this out. Uh, we want to build a community that we want to live in, and we want to do it with others who live here with us. So let's take a look at who these others are. It doesn't matter how long or how short they've been here. If we're all living here together, we've got to figure this out. And, and that strikes me as, 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 as very sort of um, indicative of the Maine that I'm familiar with. 
again, we can call it a, a Yankee realism or a, a, a practical sort of good sense of, of how to live, but it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And a booming volunteerism, it sounds oh, like in Maine. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. I mean, the last I checked at the Expo Center, they had 1,700 volunteers, yeah. you know, for 262 people sleeping there. And that's extraordinary. And yet, well, I'm wondering, why is Portland, Maine so different from St. Cloud, Minnesota? There's a story in the New York Times this past week about real friction again, around African immigrants, and they have lots of them. Can we explain that? Maine is a small place, and I think people are used to coming together to fix their problems. Um, networks are small, and networks overlap, and so um, the networks of people through connected through faith communities are interconnected with the networks of people through legal communities are interconnected through the networks of people who do youth development, and so I think when, when one network puts out a call, others respond. Hmm. Um, again, that's, that's very much part of the main tradition, is that's, that sense of mutual help, that we all survive better when we're working in concert and we're helping each other. Um, and so I, I think, I think that, that goes part of the way to explaining it. Uh, I also think that some of what you know, has already been talked about previously, that Mainers are acutely aware of our own history of immigration. You know, we are a state built by immigrants. We know that. The evidence is around us all the time. And it doesn't make sense to close the door behind us. That's not, that's not a sentiment that seems widely supported here at all. Interesting. The way life should be, Maine advertises. And maybe, <laughs> maybe it's right. That's true. <laughs> what does Maine make of our president these days? Well, I think you know the answer to that, Chris. <laughs> well, no, but in general, um, Maine has had conservatives, and they there was Trump support in Maine, was it not? Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know. I think that's a really interesting question. I, I I'm sure that there are remain people in Maine who who support Trump. Uh, we have local politicians who consider themselves um, very much aligned with his view of the world. Um, we have a local KKK chapter, for example. We have local politicians who continually try to introduce um, legislation into the state legislature that could be defined as anti-immigrant or xenophobic. Those efforts fail to gain traction, but they are there. And uh, that's, I think you know, part of every state. I mean, these are these are the big issues of the day. And these are things that we are constantly negotiating and struggling and fighting about. Uh, I think that um, the, the correct side is winning in Maine, but it doesn't mean that they're not enmeshed in, in constant struggle about this. Can you guess about the main response to the Democrats debating? Clearly a trend toward sort of a universal admission that the immigration system is broken, but mm-hmm. also... Uh, there's a liberal impulse there that's got to be liberated. Uh, yes, I think, again, um, turning to sort of Mayner's sense of practicality and human decency. You know, when things like um, the Customs and Border Patrol stopping Greyhound buses and boarding them and demanding everybody's papers began in Maine, because we are within that 100-mile constitution-free zone within which the Department of Homeland Security is free to stop people to racially profile people and to demand, you know, to ask to see their papers. Mayors were very unhappy about that. That's an infringement of civil liberties that does not sit and, well with people. And they're not doing an awful lot of it in Maine. Uh, we'll come back to that. Coming up, getting out of the Congo to Portland is one long trip. Getting out of the Expo shelter 
is another one. This is open source. The immigration news keeps crowding in. Most anguishing this week, the photograph of a Mexican father and his two-year-old daughter drowned in the Rio Grande near Brownsville, Texas. President Trump put a deportation advocate in charge of border security this week. House Democrats passed a $4.5 billion humanitarian relief package for families and children at the border. In the first round of Democratic presidential debating, four out of 10 candidates went out of their way to demonstrate fluency in Spanish. Julian Castro said it is time to decriminalize desperation, to stop prosecuting border crossers. We went to Maine to observe the reception in recent days of a few hundred asylum seekers from Central Africa, by way of Central America and the Texas border, 265 migrants from the Congo and Angola living temporarily at the Expo Center, where the Portland Red Claws, a Celtics farm team, play in the wintertime. Nancy Kelly and John Wilshire Carrera join us to imagine for what's next for those 265 people in the Expo Center. Nancy and John, husband and wife, have studied the course for asylum seekers. They are lawyers with the Greater Boston Legal Services. We left Maine, John and Nancy, wondering what what are the chances for those 265 cases making it through this immigration process? Do you want to handicap it? Nancy. Sure. Um, Each one of those asylum seekers now has to face presenting a case in court. And so where the Somali refugees came with status, each one of these individuals has been allowed in so that they can go forward in a hearing. They're going to be expected to appear before a judge. They're going to be expected to present their case in a, in a full adversarial hearing in a courtroom. Um, they don't have the right to an attorney. They can have an attorney if they can find one. Mm. And so there's going to be a real question of who's available to provide representation, for one thing. Well, they faced questions of evidence of the stories people told me about near-death experiences or threats back home? Absolutely. They're going to have to. Um, they put on their case. You can, you, can, you can rest on your testimony, but um, many people will be struggling to try to find evidence to support their case, so they'll be trying to see what they can get from back home. Um, it, it is a court process. Um, we have a huge backlog in the court, They'll be in their hearings for several years, probably. Um, we mm. have we have immigration judges who are really, you know, struggling mightily to to get through the cases that are in front of them. Um, but they have a huge backlog, and they have um, they're facing a system right now where the law is becoming increasingly restrictive because of interpretations that are being put on by our Department of Justice. Has the process? changed, been bent, or the odds changed in Trump time? The law has not changed. So we, we, we have the same statute. We have the same um, uh, convention that we're operating under um, that defines what a refugee is. The problem that we have is that the courts are within the Department of Justice. And as... <clears throat> 
the head of the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, has the power to issue interpretations of the law. So what we've seen is this government has worked around the edges and has tried to enforce interpretations of the law that increasingly restrict access hmm. to to. Do those, do those migrants in, in, in uh, Portland, John Carrera, have a fighting chance here? Well, we've been doing this work for many, many years, as you, as you explained to begin with. And yes, we've seen cases like this over the years. And yes, people like, 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 like these individuals, and actually people who come from Africa, people who come from Central America, with these type of claims definitely have a fighting chance. As Nancy has said, at this point, the federal government at least the executive, is attempting to change the, 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 the rules of the game. But the law remains the same. The advocate community, the advocacy community that's out there, that if they're able to find a good lawyer, if they're able to find a lawyer, if the community can come forward and support itself, there is a real fighting chance. And a number of people that we've represented over the years with these types of claims have actually won their, have won their claims and have moved forward with their lives. How many have lost? Well, in our and then what happens? In our particular situation, at the end of the day, not that many people have lost. I'll be honest with you. Now, there as as a as as a, as a community that goes forward on these asylum claims, I think the approval rate's probably like whether thirty to fifty percent, depending on what's going on. Mm. At this point, the government is really trying to push it down. There's a lot of different diff- uh, pieces to it, but also. Each of these individuals, as they go forward, their lives move forward as well. So sometimes it may not be asylum, but it may be something else. These immigrant communities, these refugee communities, these asylum communities are very much part of the community as a whole. And Mm. they, too, get married. They, too, have children. They, too, move on. They, too, go to school. There are a lot of different things that happen. So at the end of the day a lot of these families are able to stay. We represented 361 people who were picked up in a raid in New Bedford. We got over 200 people out as a community. This was in Back 2007. In George W. Bush time. Yes, under in 2007, right? And so of those of those folks, I would say the people that we were able to get out of, of just over 200 as a community, because we, it's our office and many offices, I would say at least 130, 140 of those people are now either have full status, many of them are citizens, or in their, on their way to full status. And they have their families here. Their community has grown. This is New Bedford. So this is another one of those stories. You're talking about Portland, Maine. You're talking about Maine. We've, gone, we've seen these types of experiences in New Bedford, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and many different places that are very similar. The details are, are fascinating. Under the rules, you cannot work while you're waiting a judgment on asylum. That's correct. Right? And Maine is one of the few states that gets around it somehow, provides uh, income and occupation for people waiting endlessly. Well, well, let's put it this way. There are rules that allow you to get work authorization if your claim claim is not decided within 180 days. And there are a lot of different nuances to that. So a number of people do get work authorization. However, there are a lot of people, particularly at the very beginning, who don't have work authorization. And so they definitely have to find a way to survive and go forward. What's going on in Maine, I think, is a very positive thing. It's, it's it, you know, asylum is there. It's, it's a human right. It's, a, it's, it's to give people a chance to find another country that's going to provide them safety when their own country won't, prote- won't protect them. So I'm, so I'm dying to hear the, to the way the argument and the evidence goes. A friend of mine who knew Cambodia intimately says uh, the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, is a more dangerous place 
than Cambodia was under the Khmer Rouge. Everybody in the Congo has earned asylum. Um, they're not obviously all going to get here, but how would you test that, you know, that need, okay, which so, seems so obvious? We okay. know uh, Congo is a kind of living hell. Right. So I would say this. I think the people who came in from Cambodia who got refugee status were granted refugee status by the American government and brought in. So they were recognized as refugees when they brought them here. These mm. individuals have come to the United States and they have to apply for asylum within the United States. So when they brought them in as refugees, they gave them work authorization. So they were in a different place there. Okay. These individuals have to go forward and win their cases and get work authorization in the process. And hopefully in the long run, they have it as well. Now, in terms of the claims, I think, you know, every Every community, every struggle, every part of the world, people go through hell. And it's very hard to, mm. you know, to compare the hells that people go through and the things that they have to go through. So in that case, I, I assume, I know that the stories from Cambodia were very, very, very hard and very terrorizing. But I also know that the stories, the, 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 the stories that people are telling from the DRC from many places in, in Africa at this point where these fights are going on are also incredibly violent mm. and very threatening. So... I don't know how to... Catch your breath, John. The mayor of Portland, who we heard already, Ethan Strimling, gets the next to last word because in conversation, he struck two big chords that cut through the noise and fog around this immigration crisis, as we all call it. One is the force of local actors, local history, schools, volunteerism, activism in churches, ethnic networks, mayor's offices, too much closer to the scene than the federal government, much less the White House. Second big theme from Portland is a counter-narrative about immigration lurks behind all this fear in the headlines. Mayor Strimling spoke of dropping in on his African charges often and starting to get a sense of who they are. They run the gamut. You know, I've been in this shelter every day, a couple times a day, meeting families, talking to them. Uh, they run the gamut from people who were uh, one who was a professor, another who was studying IT, another who was a long haul truck driver, another who was a cab driver, another who was a seamstress, right? Just runs the gamut, exactly what you would want, an incredible diversity of experiences coming here. And, and, you know, who wouldn't want somebody that's fighting that hard to try to come here? Now, I understand that they're, they're fighting that hard to save themselves and their family and to get out of something that's unimaginable. Uh, but that they're working that hard to get here, I think, is just tremendous. I guess the big question is, can you hold that sort of spirit of a welcoming immigrant place with still vast open spaces, tremendous hunger for creative young workers against the... the um, the Paul LePage impulse. He said he was Trump before Trump, more Trump than Trump, and, and he didn't like any of this. If we can stand up in, in these times against this president and say, yes, we want you here, then we are standing up at the toughest moment, certainly in my lifetime, of the kind of anti-immigrant backlash that has happened. We've seen it, of course, throughout history, and uh, unfortunately, even in Maine and even in Portland at the turn of the century when the KKK was trying to keep Catholics out and the Irish, and we actually changed our form of government back in the 1920s because mm. they felt like the Irish and the immigrants were getting too much power, so we took away the elected mayor. Well, a hundred years later, mm. we now have an elected mayor again. I'm only the second one in the last hundred years, and that's because we are now pushing back again against this and saying democracy matters, and we want people to participate. It's a wonderful experience to see that light coming back. 
I, I look, I, I hope so. I hope we are setting the standard. I hope we're raising the bar. But more importantly, I just, I hope these families, their dreams are fulfilled. I hope being here becomes everything that they wanted it to be. Every generation of immigrants that comes in goes through these same kind of struggles. But there is a very good support network here within the Congolese community, within the Angolan community, and simply among the populace at large. What, what are you sensing about the vibrations since this became a public event? Fox News hates you. Trump is wary of you. All sorts of people are wondering, could this be the truth of our culture, mm. the secret truth of our culture, that we, we remember immigration, we honor it? We... I, I do think that our history shows, uh, despite some very unfortunate moments where we have pushed back against immigrants, you know, from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the KKK and uh, throughout our history, uh, that has been very unfortunate. But uh, we know at our core that immigrants are what built this country, what continues to build this country. It is our greatest strength that we try to bring in the hearts and minds of people from all over the world and say, please come and help turn us into the the kind of country we want to be. That was the mayor of Portland, Maine, Ethan Strimling. Catherine Besterman at Colby College, but also Nancy Kelly, John Carrera in our studio. How exceptional is Portland, Maine, is my question. And how exceptional <laughs> think, are, its, are its Africans? Uh, so so I'll, I'll take a first stab at that, uh, Chris. I, I do think that Portland, Maine is, is exceptional in many, many ways. It's one of the reasons why I choose to live here myself. It's an extraordinary place. I also think it's unexceptional and for, for the very same kinds of reasons. I do think that what Mayor Strimling had to say about recognizing the power of immigration to renew communities, to build communities, to move us towards the future, is deeply ingrained in the American consciousness. I think it's there a lot of other places as well. John Carrera, are we talking about, a, a, is this a wonder world in, in Maine, or is it, is it us? I had a feeling it's us. Well, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm also an immigrant myself. I'm actually Andean. I'm from South America. I've lived in this country most of my life, and I would say it is us. But I think in order for that to happen, you have to connect. And I think mm. the story that the mayor is telling and the story that Catherine is, is talking about, I think it goes all to building community, connecting, getting to know each other as human beings. For us, doing asylum work is an incredible ex experience because we get to know each individual as a human being mm -hmm. with their flaws and their strengths. And you end up realizing when that happens, when people really see each other, right? When they, when they, when they talk to the woman who's taking care of the grandmother, who, who is from another part of the world, when they go down the street and the children get to know each other and marry, marry to, you know, they get married together in the long run. These are the things that I think bring the communities together. And then we have a strong, strong strength of standing up in Maine, in Massachusetts, in California. I want to places. ask you, when you had the case in New Bedford, in the Bush II administration, where did you think the people were? And, and all of us in Massachusetts. I mean, did you assume that um, the reaction was coming I don't know, out of the citizenry, or was it just Washington politics? Well, I, th I think at the time, when it first happened, the raid happened, we were all taken aback. We didn't, we didn't really know that these communities were there, the communities that they targeted, that we as advocates had been doing this work for a while. We got in touch with people in New Bedford. We didn't really know what was going on. The community itself really came together, because I think they understood that 
like a bomb had gone off and suddenly all these people in their community who'd been going to school and going to church and going to places had disappeared. And they were basically mothers, a lot of fathers, but mostly mothers. So it became a story of children being separated from the mothers. Mm. And that's what sort of brought people together and started talking to each other. That's what we saw. And then we saw it as a question of women, women going forward, factory workers who were going forward. And suddenly it became the community as a whole was going forward. So there were differences in New Bedford, but they came together. We had a very strong governor at the time, Governor Patrick. He came out and he embraced the story. And we also had Senator Kennedy. So the federal government was on our side at that point, and it made a big difference, you know? <laughs> Nancy Kelly, children are still being separated from their mothers, and it's still a scandal. Where are we going? What's the trend, the direction here? I think what what we're seeing now is we're seeing a lot of fight back. We're seeing a lot of people stepping up from very unlikely places. So, for example, uh, the asylum officers who are being asked to participate in a process that results in people being stopped at the border and sent back into Mexico. And the story that you heard yesterday of Valeria, the little girl who, who drowned in the river, yeah. they had been turned back into Mexico. They tried to enter at the border crossing and were sent back. So this process of sending asylum seekers back into Mexico into a dangerous situation um, has has really met with um, interesting and, and very powerful um, resistance. Um, mm. So, for example, yesterday, the union for asylum officers, these are um, the people who are tasked with deciding these cases, mm. their union filed a brief in a Ninth Circuit case um, challenging the government's policy of sending people back into Mexico, um, pointing out the history of immigration, the history of asylum law, and, and charging that they mm. were being forced to violate their duty to enforce this law. Mm. So you're seeing fight back from very um, interesting and, and powerful we take courage from your story, Nancy Kelly, and from Portland, Maine. Thank you, Nancy. And John Wilshire Carrera and Catherine Besterman. Our show was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. We had lots of help from Lydia Moland and Jim Johnson, too. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath patrols our borders. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. 